You're listening to the all-new Veterinary Podcast, The Vet Chat, with fellow vets and hosts, Matt Wells and Steve O'Ealy. Join us as we speak to a wide variety of industry professionals about hot topics and subjects affecting animal health in New Zealand. Thanks for listening. Welcome to this month's episode of The Vet Chat. I'm your host, Steve, and today on the show we have Warren Stroud. Warren has had quite an interesting career so far. He started off in large animal practice and then went on to owning a small animal practice with his wife, Lynn, who is also a vet. Based on the Kapiti Coast, they've now sold the practice. Lynn's gone teaching and Warren is still a vet. I talked to Warren about being a business owner changing from small animal practice to large animal practice and he also gives some tips to young vets as to what practice owners are looking for in a new colleague. We hope you enjoy this month's episode of the Vet Chat and thanks as always for listening. So tell us a bit about your career and what you've done and how you ended up here. I graduated in 1995 and um, went to Massey University first initial role as a vet was in the UK, uh, where I worked for a year and a half. Uh, we did a bit of travel while we were over there as well, and then uh, came home to New Zealand and worked in the Manawatu as a large animal vet for about two years. And then we bought a practice, a bit dissatisfied with working for other people and wanted to try it our own way. So I did that. Worked there for about 20 years and then I sold the practice to VetCare Animates in 2015. Worked for them for three years, then went back into... This was still on the Manawatu, was it? Uh, well, no, that was on the Kapiti Coast. Our, our two practices were... Uh, our first practice we purchased in Paraparaumu and then about six years later bought a second one. Sure, it was a wise move, but uh, it was a good learning journey and yeah, it was a fun time. And so that was entirely a companion animal, was it? Yeah, both those practices, um, I guess we purchased when um, the area was urbanising quite quickly and all of the large animal sort of work disappeared or dried up. So they became completely companion animal. And now where are you currently working? I've started back working on the Kapiti Coast um, for care vets at the Paraparaumu Clinic as a, um, I guess you call it a senior veterinarian. At my age, it's nothing but senior. <laughs> so how did you find the transition, Warren, from being a large animal vet to a companion animal vet? Yeah, it is, it is a bit of a... I did continue when I was at um, Totally Vets. I did continue working companion animal one day a week, so I wasn't completely rusty. But uh, it is quite a shift, really. Uh, I guess the big thing is your client contact time is quite large with companion animal compared to large animal practices a lot of time in between calls to have some, you know, private time, thinking time, that sort of thing, relax a bit more. You've got your game face on continuously in the companion animal, that's for sure. Yeah, I definitely found companion animals more emotionally draining than largies. And the other thing too is with the actual client time, I don't know how you found it where you were, but you're with one farmer or a couple of farmers for quite an extended period of time. And it's definitely a more relaxed interaction, especially once you know the farmers. Compared to smallies, where often you know it's almost like a speed dating, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, it is a bit. It's uh, a bit unrelenting when you've got two or three hours of consults in a row, and it's busy. That's for sure. I mean, it's a, a lot more laid back when you're in a farmer vet relationship and you're working on a farm for and you're on the farm for two or three hours, whatever. 
he certainly built a very close and strong relationship with the farm client, that's for sure. Like many vets, you come across some sad stories or stories where clients are in difficult situations. And um, we inherited a dog called Oscar. The clients were going back to Russia to live and they couldn't take the dog with them because he was too old and had some health problems. He was a very, a very big dog and he was a very spoiled dog. He was their only child sort of thing. And I guess the most amusing thing about the story inheriting Oscar was that he came with a Mercedes Benz and full use of a Mercedes Benz when we inherited the dog, which was quite (laughs) (laughs) Was there condition that he had to drive the car or was allowed to sit in the back? Well, yeah, the car was definitely his. They purchased the car so they could take him on a summer holiday one year. You know, it was one of those station wagon Mercedes and he had the whole back area. It was his. uh, Seems like a pretty good condition. It was. It was. He was a great dog, too. Yeah, it was, it was what a, breed of dog was he? Well, he was a Mastiff cross. And, um, you know, he had some significant health problems, arthritis and uh, laryngeal paralysis sort of in the last little while. But, yeah, he was, he was a character. Speaking mainly to some of the younger vets considering buying their own business, if you had your time again, would you recommend buying a vet business? I think reflecting on it, uh, looking back, it's certainly worthwhile in that it enabled us to accumulate a lot of capital over that period of time that we operated it. It was quite stressful and I guess we knew very little about running a business when we took it on and you learn as you go, that's for sure. I don't think if you're in a position you're thinking, should I buy a business or not? I don't know enough about it. I don't think that's necessarily an obstacle to buying a business. You can certainly learn as you go. And if you've got a you know, reasonable drive and ambition, you make it work. And did you find, did it significantly change your mindset as a vet being a business owner? I mean, obviously there are financial pressures to a degree, but how did you find this mindset shift from being a vet to a business owner? I think it did kind of become a whole lot more not quite personal but serious certainly the buck stopped with you with any decision making problems that sort of thing and when when as the business grew and you started employing other vets uh, you had to manage them support them so you got very much distracted from just being a vet that's for sure and had to develop a whole lot of other school and soft management skills and things like that to run the business and to be honest with you it probably does detract from your purely veterinary kind of focus if you wanted to be someone who is just focused on veterinary work then running and owning the business might not be the right thing for you from your perspective having um, did you say you owned a business for 20 years um, you and your wife yep so from that perspective I know some young vets can get caught up in grades and achievement and that sort of thing. When it came to hiring someone, particularly a young vet, but just in general, was there something that stood out to you as the most important characteristic? To be honest with you, I don't recollect ever really looking at their grades. I think their attitude and their ability to be a team member and you know finding out what they were interested in and what their ambition was, those sorts of things were more important. But yeah, really, when you're a new graduate, you have limited experience. So, you know, experience is gained over time. So that's not what you're looking for when you're employing a new graduate. You're looking for attitude and motivation and interpersonal skills, those sorts of things. Yeah, I think interpersonal skills has got to be one of the most underrated areas potentially in vet school is, and I know that they are definitely working on it more and more now, but 
there's definitely some people that potentially might have gone to vet school as opposed to med school because somehow in their minds it meant that they weren't dealing with people. But in some ways, I think that as a vet, you almost need to be better with people than a doctor. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't like to sort of assume anything, but massive generalization there, to be fair. <laughs> But you're trying to communicate complex issues in very emotionally charged situations, that's for sure. And you do need to have some skills and talent in managing that, that's for sure. And again, you know, you're not necessarily, not everyone's born with those skills. You can learn them as you go. you just got to recognise that you need to develop those areas if you don't have a natural ability in that area, I guess. I mean, I found personally from when I first graduated as a vet to now is that my soft skills have definitely improved significantly. You know, I think academically there's probably a limit to your intelligence, but I do think that the emotional skills is definitely um, stuff that you can learn. You can learn to listen better and pick up body language from clients and that sort of thing. For sure. Uh, can you tell us about a challenging case or scenario you've had as a vet? I mean, I guess the most challenging cases are the ones that don't go right. You know, there's been a number of those over the years and they don't go right for a range of reasons and not all of those reasons are within your control. And the difficulty I've found with those cases is managing the client relationship during those situations, which because they're spending a lot of money on on a case, you know, there's been a couple of fractured limbs that we've repaired over the years where the patient has been not very compliant and developed complications post-operatively and uh, that usually leads potentially to more expense and uh, a bit of heartache and so forth so yeah those are the usual ones that are the most challenging to me anyway. Yeah I always find those ones difficult especially in our profession where people actually see the cost of medical treatment and you're not only saying that things haven't gone well, but then potentially sort of implying or suggesting that there's going to be significant additional costs. It's a really hard conversation to have because you genuinely do want what's best for the animal. But of course, you're under an obligation to say, look, we're going to have to do another surgery or whatever it is, and it's going to cost an extra X amount of dollars. I always found it particularly challenging having those conversations with clients because invariably, I think the moment you start bringing up costs, it's like you care more about the financial side than you do about their animal. So it is a very, very difficult conversation to have. And I don't think it's one I've ever mastered. Yeah, it's difficult. And there's always, you know, you feel, I guess, when you go into a surgery or or whatever you're doing, you're going into it with the best of intentions for the right outcomes. And then you always question yourself, was there something I could have done better to make the situation or the procedure, you know, more successful? And, And so... There's that side of things and then there's, you know, springing extra costs on a client and you try and manage that as best you can, which is difficult in terms of, you know, how much extra cost there is for the client, but also communicating that to the client, which can be challenging. And they often, they don't always appreciate that the issues developed for reasons that are beyond your control either, which can make it even more challenging. Have you found a way to best sort of communicate the money side of things, in particular those sort of cases that are sort of ongoing? And I guess surgical complications might be one, but another example might just be one of those ongoing medical ones where you thought, oh, it was only going to take two or three days for the animal to come right. And then for whatever reason, it's ended up extending a lot longer than that. Do you have any pearls of wisdom in terms of communicating the costs? I guess spending time with the client 
if you've got the time in your schedule to talk about your thoughts right from the start and some of the costs around the treatment or diagnostic processes you need to do to get to where you want to go. In a general sense, I mean, I kind of try and break it down into some steps for the client and say, well, this is what we'll achieve first. And that's the first step, but it can often lead to other diagnostic tests that need to be done, but it might narrow us down a pathway. So, you know, I guess you're trying to communicate that there will be some ongoing cost with the case before you even open it up. It's really, I guess it, it is impossible for some of those medical cases to say uh, it's going to be $2,500 all up or, or whatever it is because they do change and you can't predict exactly what you're going to have to do. So I guess the, the simplest thing for me is to say, that we will do the initial round of tests, whatever, and then say we will then talk about what we need to do next and just try and keep it open. I guess they need to know that there will be significant cost and is that the path they want to go down? Make sure they're interested in spending that kind of money to you know, treat their animal. Like I remember when pet insurance first sort of started becoming a thing in New Zealand, I have to say I was a bit sceptical about the whole thing thinking of the vet profession going down the line of human medicine with legal claims and all that sort of thing. But ever since working in a practice where quite a few clients have pet insurance, it really makes the conversation a lot more um, medical focused and you can just you know focus on doing your job, which is really nice. It is nice when they have pet insurance, that's for sure. And you know I've seen a few clients who really appreciate the benefit of it down the track when their pet has ongoing health issues. But um, Unfortunately, that it doesn't have quite enough traction in this country yet, does it really? It would be nice if more of our clients had it, that's for sure. I guess the other thing is um, the finance options have improved dramatically over the last 10 years in practice, and that's really helped as well. So just to change tack a bit, I was reading a little bit about you in terms of your time at Kapiti, and I see that you've got four kids. So how have you found being a business owner, a vet, and balancing having four kids? Owning a business and having a young family worked quite well, that's for sure. But it did get harder as the kids got older and their interests broadened and they needed to go to activities and played football, rode horses, etc., etc. That became more challenging being part of that. And that was probably part of the motivation for selling the business was to be able to have more time to spend with the kids and see them grow up rather than miss yeah. it. Another thing I was reading about is you have gone to schools for a number of years to sort of tell them about the vet profession. What is the sort of message that you're telling people considering going into the vet profession? I guess we kind of keep it open to any role in the vet profession, not just being a veterinarian. There's all sorts of you know levels of people wanting to be vet nurses or even work in vet clinics in general. The, the things that I try and talk about are the interesting things we do, the important role that we play in the clinical sort of veterinary role in helping people look after their pets in a better way, enjoy their pets, um, keep their pets healthy throughout their whole lives, those sorts of things, and the value of the client-vet relationship over the lifetime of the pet. Some of the good things that you experience when you work in a place for a long time where you have multiple generations of a family coming to you for veterinary care for their pets, those sorts of things. Talk about the intellectual challenges of getting into the course and completing the course and the workload once you graduate and sort of what the responsibilities of being a vet are in the real world. So you make them aware of the expectations of being a vet and the on-call aspect of the role? 
Yeah, that it's not a nine to five job, that there are 24 hour care responsibilities, however that may be, it varies from practice to practice. That uh, cats and dogs and other animals get sick at all hours of the day. And yeah, that's kind of what they're there for. Yeah, I guess the the kids at the schools are pretty receptive and interested to hear a bit about the profession, that's for sure. I think a few have gone on to apply for vet school. I only know of one that's in the uh, vet school currently from the crop of kids that I've spoken to, so I don't know how effective I've been, really. <laughs> it's sort of hard to do a statistical analysis on that one. <laughs> yeah. I know you're reluctant to call yourself an expert in any particular field, but is there any element of surgery that you would consider yourself a bit of a specialist? I do some knee surgeries and I think the cruciate ligament surgery that I've been doing is the TTA and I think it has yielded for me quite good outcomes for the patients, that's for sure. I know there's a whole range of things you can do for knees for cruciate ligament repair, but I've had pretty good outcomes with that so far in terms of you know quality of life for the patients afterwards, so I'm pretty passionate about that. And using physical therapy and that sort of thing post-op to improve our outcomes. It seems to have made a big difference, that's for sure. Did you ever do any of the previous surgeries prior to the TTA becoming common? Like um, I know that some vets do the, I think it's called the lateral fibrillatai or something along those lines. Did you ever do that prior to the TTA? Yes, I learned one called Over the Top initially back in the late 90s and used that for a few years and then learnt the Fabella extracapsular repair and did that for a number of years simply because it seemed less invasive and the outcomes were equivalent. And then I guess in 2014-2015 learned how to do TTA and I've been doing that and the extracapsular repair for those that don't want to spend that kind of money as two options basically. And do you notice a significant difference in the outcomes between the TTA and the extracapsular repair? From a completely non-scientific perspective, I think the TTA patients certainly walk out of the practice better than they walked in the day after surgery, and initial outcomes to me seem a lot better. So in terms of weight-bearing and return to function, whether that pans out long-term, I wouldn't like to say. It is just interesting hearing because it's one thing reading the papers and stuff, but actually hearing an own vet's perspective, especially someone who's done both surgeries and actually physically seeing the difference, it is sometimes good to actually see the anecdotal evidence as well, I suppose. Well, I guess the thing I found dissatisfying about the extracapsular repair was that there were, you know, you perform the same technique from patient to patient, and yet some patients, for no obvious reason, that you could see or determine they didn't do well. And you have to think, well, you know, it wasn't obvious why they didn't do well. And I just think the outcomes seem more predictable with that TTA technique to me in a positive way. That's my opinion anyway. I guess then COVID came along and, and changed everything for everyone. It was sort of not work as usual, but everybody, I guess most veterinarians and most practices have worked all the way through. Certainly in large animal practice, we just carried on as normal in that we serviced the calls that needed to be serviced. I operated from the clinic because I didn't live locally. I had to commute in each day from the company coast to Palmerston North, so the roads were less busy, that's for sure. Did you say that that was large animal practice? Yeah, yeah, that's, I, was, I was working in large animal practice in for Totally Vets for the last two years, yeah, up until about 
three weeks ago. But farmers did certainly call you out a lot less. I'm not sure if they were just trying to re reduce the risk, but we serviced the um, quality of life issues that you need to lame cows, um, you know, that sort of stuff. How did you find going back to large animal practice from what sounds like 20 years of small animal practice? Yeah, yeah. Well, it was a good learning curve and it was well supported by the team at Totally Vets. So really good. I did have to, the Vet Council required a documented learning journey back into, supported learning journey back into large animal practice. That was sort of based around a documented reading list and case studies and a monthly report from supervising veterinarians on my performance and skill demonstration, that sort of thing. That was supposed to run for about six months, but it got signed off after about three or four months, I believe. It was good. It was good. I enjoyed it. I did it for a challenge. You know, I sort of been doing small eats for 18, 20 years, whatever, and just wanted to do something new. You're never too old to learn something new, that's for sure. And I guess the veterinary profession is great in that it allows you a lot of ability to work as a veterinarian, but in many different kinds of roles, that's for sure. So that's quite a luxury. And as long as, you know, you want to learn something new, then you should never say, say no. Yeah, I've, I've really enjoyed it. It's been really, really stimulating getting back into large animal practice, it was. And, you know, lots of veterinarians get to a point in their career where they do actually stop being veterinarians and change to other things, teaching, whatever. I don't know. I mean, that's my experience. My wife changed career and is now a teacher. So I think it's natural to get to middle age and think, I've done this for this period of time. I want to challenge myself again and do something new. But I did it within the profession. I think it's set up for us to be able to do that. And as long as you're well supported, it's certainly manageable. I think there's a little bit of a stigma to potentially leaving the profession or changing, but it is actually really good and healthy for people to not necessarily do the same thing for their whole lives and actually challenge themselves in different ways. And I don't think people should be um, looked down upon for doing new things, like, for example, your wife going into teaching. No, I mean, it, I guess for a range of reasons, after having our kids and family, she was in and out of the profession working limited days per week and wasn't finding it satisfying and had developed an adult teaching class as a sideline and really enjoyed the teaching aspect of things. So we sort of decided that it was a great idea for her to explore that and she did teach training and has loved it and really thrived. So it really is what she wants to do. So that's great. Final thoughts, Warren, before I let you go. What would be some advice you would give to a young vet starting their profession? I think getting a job in this environment is relatively not easy. Um, there are a lot of jobs out there at the moment. My advice is to try and get a job in a practice that you feel well supported in and always challenge yourself and test your boundaries. And that's the only way you're going to grow and develop. But you need to do that in a way these days where you are well supported. I 100% agree with what you've just said. Just as an add-on, I think a very important part to taking a job is that you fit in well with the team. It's all well and good taking a job that looks good on paper, but if the workplace isn't a good fit or you don't get along with the people that you're going to be potentially working with, then it's going to make your time really long and difficult. So I would be choosing a place where you fit in with the team and you're going to enjoy your time there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, job satisfactions from the team you work in, the clients that you have, the whole package, isn't it? It's not just about money. 
Thanks for listening to The Vet Chat with Matt Wells and Steve O'Ealy. This show is proudly supported by Verbeck. If you want to find out more, go to nz.verbeck.com forward slash podcast. <laughs>